Okay. Parashat Shmot. In 1263, Raymond de Perfort, who I believe was a cardinal, not a big fan of the Jews, challenged the Jews to a debate. Now you have to understand that the Holocaust didn't come from nowhere. And uh, maybe sometime we'll do a lecture on the sources of anti-Semitism. It's interesting that one of the earliest uh, blueprints for anti-Semitism is the beginning of Parsha Shemot, and we'll get to that. Um, but there were two primary methodologies that the church used, specifically in the Middle Ages, um, in their quest uh, either for the Jews to join the Christian fold or in their determination to sort of demonstrate that the Jewish people were no longer the chosen people and everything else in between. And without getting into replacement theology and everything else that's going on there. One of them was obviously forced baptisms, burning at the stake, etc., which was a horrible thing. The other was the debate. You know, sort of a more genteel form of anti-Semitism. We'll debate with you, and when we prove that Christian ideology is sort of the better option, then obviously you'll want to join us in our, you know, homage to our Savior and so on and so forth, right? Ethan, you with me? I know you're with me. Okay, right? So, S's don't think you're off the hook. Okay, right? So... So he challenges the Jewish community to debate. Now what this meant was that the Jewish people had to come up with a representative who would debate. Does anybody remember who ultimately stands for this debate in 1267? The Ramban. Okay, now I feel bad quoting the Ramban. Tonight is the Rambam's Yorzeit. It's big, right? So, you know, hopefully when you have your cholent, you'll learn a little Rambam, right? Moshe ben Maimon. Lezichro. Um, but the Ramban they approached the Ramban the Ramban was the undisputed greatest Torah scholar of his generation uh, wrote a parish on the entire Chumash wrote a commentary on all of Shas uh, wrote a Sefer a commentary on Sefer Mitzvahs I mean wrote Torah Sa'adam and theological it's just unbelievable how and they didn't have computers and they I mean they did it with it's unbelievable what the Ramban did so they approached Ramban, would he be willing to take the position of the Jewish people in this debate? So Ramban said he would do it on one condition. Anybody want to guess what the condition was? He had to be able to answer. Now that seems like a little crazy, like, yeah, it's a debate. Now the way a Christian debate worked was, the church made its position, and the person representing the Jewish people had to say, amen. He said, if I can't answer, I'm not willing to do it. King James of Aragon, who the Ramban would later call one of the righteous among the nations, granted him this right. And Bichlal, the story of King James is a fascinating story. So the Ramban debates this. And you can read the substance of this debate. When the debate was over, um, the church, by the way, chose Pablo Cristiani. Pablo Cristiani was a Spanish. He had actually been a yeshiva bacher until... It's not exactly clear, probably about the age of 14. And then he, for various reasons, decided to convert to Catholicism, became a Benedictine monk. Um, little knowledge is a dangerous thing. It blows my mind to think that a boy who was 14 years old when he stopped learning Gemara is going to challenge the Ramban to a debate. I just, 
blows my mind. But okay. He challenges him to a debate. The Ramban obviously wiped the floor with this guy. Now, how do I know that he wiped the floor with him? Because the church actually published its version of the debate. And Ramban was so upset about what the church published, which was pretty far from the truth, and distorted what the Ramban said, left out things that he said, that the Ramban published his own version. Now, this was a crime punishable by death. Right? First of all, you weren't allowed to publish anything in Christendom without the church's approval. And second of all, and there's, I mean, there, there's a version of the Shas, which is published, edited, with all sorts of additions, because the church missionaries bribed people later in the 1600s. This is a big deal that he did this. And the church, therefore, sentenced him to death. King James of Aragon commutes the death sentence, but says he has no choice but to sentence him to exile. And so the Ramban is to go into exile. Now, just as an aside, you can read the entire version that the Ramban published. It's called the Vikuach, Havikuach, the Great Debate. Um, and it's actually published in English. There's an English translation which was published by Chevelle. And we have Kitvir Ramban here. I'm pretty sure you'll find it in the back. But if you can't find it, uh, I'm sure between me and Rablau we have a copy. Um, you're welcome. It's a fascinating thing to study. But in any event, the reason I bring up this whole story is because at the end, the Ramban is sentenced to exile. So you're a Jew. You have to leave everything you know and your community behind. You're probably never going to see your family again. And you're old. I mean, this was the end of his life. Where do you go? You go to Eretz Yisrael. And he comes here for the last few years of his life. Now, if you would have asked a Spaniard in 1267, in December, where is Moshe ben Nachmanides? By the way, has anybody here ever been to Spain? You've been to Cordoba? If you go to Cordoba, which is amazing, they have a huge statue. I have not been there. I'm going to go there one day, Mitzvah Shem. They have a huge statue of the Ramban. They take pride that the Ramban, and the Ramban, by the way, that the Ramban was a proud citizen of Cordoba, and they kind of admit the fact that they kicked him out. But okay, right? That's like when I was in Ireland. I went to the, there's a museum of immigration in Ireland. And their biggest sort of claim to fame is all the Irish that are all over the world in other places who left Ireland. It's interesting, but okay, right? But in any event, um, the Ramban, if you would have asked the Spaniard, they would have said the Ramban's in exile. But if you would have asked the Ramban, and we know this from his writings, the Ramban believed he was finally coming home. Where is exile and where is home? What does it mean to be home? Now this week's parsha begins Sefer Shemot. It is the transition from the family of Israel to the nation of Israel. Right? Shivim Yadu Mitzrayma, there are 70 souls who go down to Egypt. There's a whole discussion about how you count that and who counts, Yosef, Menashe, Ephraim, Right? And by the time we will leave, 200 plus years later, we're no longer a family, we're a nation. Okay? So where do the Jews go when they get to Spain? Well, they go down to Mitzrayim, so they're in exile, right? Because they're in Mitzrayim. What made Israel home? I mean, Avram lived there. Avram wasn't born there. Yitzchak was born there. Yaakov was born there. Yaakov leaves. His sons are born there. 
they leave. 200 years, the Jews are in... Let me ask you a question. Am I an American Jew or a Jewish American? Famous question. If you were ever in a B'nai Akiva, like, you know, USY, anywhere you were, they eventually, some Madrich or Madrichah had, you know, needed a pula, you just pull this one out of the hat. If you're a Jewish American, it means you're an American, you happen to be a Jewish American. You could be a Muslim American, you could be, but what's important to you is you're American. If you're an American Jew, it means what's important to you is that you're a Jew, right? And you could have been an American Jew, but you could have been a Muslim Jew, you could, well, no. You could have been a French Jew, you could, right? Okay. What is it that makes us home? Uh, by the way, it's interesting. As an aside, something to think about. Um, you know, one of the big conflicts, this is good for a Thursday night uh, discussion sometime, if you want, we can do it tonight. Um, you know, Jews, Palestinians, two states, one state, is this ours, is this theirs, who was here when, who was here first? It's an interesting question. There is a unique uh, rule when it comes to the Palestinians in the United Nations. I don't know if you know this. There was a woman called Joan Peters. She was a, a news hound. She was a reporter for CBS News, and she was a master researcher. She was hired by a foundation to write a book on the history of the Palestinians. Okay? But they didn't get, she was a very left-wing reporter, and she took issue with Israel on a lot of issues, so they thought this was a safe bet, right? What they didn't count on was that she was a serious researcher. So she spent a couple years researching this. I think they paid her a pretty penny. And eventually she produced a book. And the book is called From Time Immemorial. I believe it's out of print. It's a magnificent book. It's not written as a novel. It's a lot of data. But it's 700 pages that just completely unpacks, not by an Israeli, not by a Jew, not even by a right-winger, completely unpacks this question. And just as an example of the type of data you'll find in there, um, you know, the United Nations, I mean, ver- figures vary, uh, will tell you that there are about five and a half million Palestinian refugees. Why will they tell you there are five and a half million refugees? Because um, a Palestinian is considered a refugee, right, Till time memorial. In other words, if you were born, first of all, the United Nations condition for who was defined as a refugee, uh, you know, when the ceasefire was, 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 or was finally signed, or the armistice was signed in uh, 1950, after the War of Independence, was anyone who had been in Israel, or they call it Palestine, um, two years prior to the War of 1948. If you were here for two years, you were studying whatever, okay? And that's it. You know, so if you were here studying for two and a half years and then you were forced or you went or you left to Jordan and then you're in Jordan and your kid are born in Jordan, your son is a Palestinian because he was born a Palestinian. And if his son, born in Jordan, is a Palestinian, right? So a hundred years from now, you'd have seven generations of Arabs born in Jordan. Their ancestors spent two years in Birzeit University, which didn't exist then, but whatever, and they're all Palestinians, right? Israel, on the other hand, had, at its count, says that today, right, I'm, I was, I'm a fourth-generation-born American, but my great-great-grandfather came over from Odessa, right? My grandmother was three years old when she came on a boat from Warsaw, and I'm pretty sure that they were in Poland for a long time, but I'm not a Pole. Once I was born in America, I'm an American, my kids are not Americans. They actually have American citizenship, right? But they're Israelis because they were born in Israel and they live in Israel. So what makes a place your home? 
if I go to America, am I now an American? Am I an Israeli? Am I both? Where is home? So the Jewish people go down to Egypt, right? And where do they go to live? This is fascinating. Where do they go to live? Right? You look in, uh, in the end of last week's Sefer, right? In Perak Zion, right? Pasuk Yud Aleph. By Yoshev Yosef et Avivet Echav. And Yosef settles his father and his brothers. By Yitainlem Achuzah. Now, what's an Achuzah? Achuzah comes from the word Le'echoz, to grab onto something. He gives them a stake in the land. He gives them land. It's granted to him by Pharaoh. By the way, how does Yosef have land? How does Pharaoh have land to grant? Anybody remember? Right, because part of the deal for all the years of famine was if you want food, you'll sell us your land. So Pharaoh now owns all the land in Egypt. And by the way, everyone in Egypt is a slave. Jews soon will be slaves. Non-Jews are slaves. The Egyptians say they're all slaves to Pharaoh. Right? And so Yosef has the right to give the land to who he wants. So he gives them an achuzah be'eretz Mitzrayim. He gives them a holding. He gives them a stake. He gives them land. Be'metav ha'aretz. Be'eretz ramseis. They are given a portion in the land of Ramses. Ramses II. What was this land called? What was this area called? Goshen. Here's an interesting question for you. Did we ever give that up? Do we have a section of land, you know, that should be ours? Should we get reparations for Goshen? I'm going to leave you to think about that. Right? So now the Jews go to Goshen. Now, eventually the brothers die... Menashe and Ephraim were not born in Israel. They never lived in Israel. They visited Israel once when Yaakov died, when they buried him, and they grew up in Egypt. And their children grew up in Egypt, and their children grew up in Egypt, and their children. 200 years. Do you understand that? 200 years ago was 1823. 210 years. That's 1813. Imagine if you and your family have been living in America since 1813, but before 1813... You lived in, I don't know, England for, I want to say, also 150 years. What would you call yourself? Would you call yourself British? Or would you call yourself American? Right? Depends. So they're living in Goshen. Here's another interesting detail. Yosef, it says, Vayoshev. Yosef et Aviv. He settles him. Right? What does this remind you of? Where was the last time we found this verb with Yaakov? Be'eshev Yaakov. Be'eret Megurei Aviv. Very good. Yaakov dwelled in Israel. In fact, there's a famous medrash that Rashi quotes there. Bikesh Yaakov l'shevet b'shalva. He wants to finally dwell in peace. He finally got home. Right? By the way, what does Yaakov do related to the land of Israel that no one has ever done before? Avram does it, but he does it uh, to bury someone. What does he do? He purchases land. Where does Yaakov purchase land? Shechem. Shechem is the first place that a Jew buys land to live in as opposed to die in. Who's buried in Shechem? Yosef. Yosef. You ever wonder why Yosef wants to go up and be buried in Shechem? 
Because that's where it began, on one level. Where we live is who we are. But the brothers don't say that they've come to live la shevet. The brothers say, We have come, I don't know, let's use an English word just so we can differentiate, but it really is to be, to sojourn. I think that's one of the words people like to, sojourn, we're sojourn, right? Lagur. What's the difference between Lashevet and Lagur? What does the word Lagur remind you of? Ger. Ger. What's a Ger? Stranger. Ger Toshav, a person who isn't really quite the citizen. So what's the difference between Lashevet and Lagur? Permanence. Is this really home? Right? Fascinating. Tell you something else that's interesting, right? Um, what does this remind you of? Lagur ba'aretz banu. What is this a fulfillment of? Nobody? What happened with Avraham? The Caleb Rebbe gets it right, right? Hashem comes to Avraham Avinu, right? And he makes this this covenant with him. It's a bizarre covenant. It's called Brit Ben Abtarim. Does anybody know what Brit Ben Abtarim means? It's the covenant between, you know, Batares, <laughs> pardon? Pieces. It's the Brit, the covenant between the pieces. You want to know why it's called the covenant between the pieces? If, if one of you was doing this out in the courtyard, they'd call the police. They would. Avram has to take animals, cut them in half, put the carcass on either side, and walk between them. It is the most bizarre thing. And while this is going on, I'm oversimplifying, the vultures come down, right, to eat the meat. And God says, now you know I make a covenant with you. And what's this covenant? There are two principal promises in this covenant. The first promise is, right, um, right? Your seed, your children, will be strangers in a land that isn't theirs. They will enslave them. They will cause them to suffer. 400 years. How we do that calculation is another discussion. But I will, I will judge that nation. And eventually they will come away with great wealth, with prosperity. You're going to suffer, you're going to be strangers, and you're going to come out. Now that's interesting. So if I'm the children of Yaakov, and we're coming down to Egypt, and we get this portion of land. And I'm saying, by the way, before we get to this, one more detail. Fascinating, right? Yosef has a whole recipe. If you look in uh, Perak Memvav, again, uh, one second. When they're having this whole discussion about how this is going to work, 
you're going to come down. You don't have to go back and forth. You don't have to keep getting food in the famine. I got gotcha. you. But here's how it's going to work. So it somehow becomes understood that this land is given to them. It's called Goshen. Right? Yaakov sends Yehuda to go to Goshen. Rashi says Yehuda's going to set up a yeshiva. I'm going to split, you know, what that is. Right? So now they've come down. Yosef comes up to Goshen. Right? That's where they meet. They meet in Goshen. He doesn't go to Israel. Right? So Yosef says to his brothers, I'm going to go tell Paro. My father and my brothers and the household have come to me. Now ask me an obvious question. Yaakov's in Israel. The brothers are supposed to go out. Then they have to turn around because the cup was stolen, right? And they have this whole dialogue. And Yosef reveals himself. And so the brothers go back up to tell Yaakov that Yosef is alive. Now Yaakov comes down. And they go to Goshen. That's where they are. They bring down all their flock and their sheep and they have grazed land and they're in Goshen. So Yosef now comes up to Goshen and they have this discussion. And then Yosef says, okay, I'm going to go to Paro and I'm going to tell him you've all come. Why does he have to tell him now? Doesn't Paro know? What is this all about? And listen to what he says, right? I'm going to tell Paro that these people are shepherds. Because they were Bemet, they were, they were ranchers, they were shepherds. And they've brought all their flocks with them. This is a strange thing. He's telling the brothers, I'm going to tell Paro that you're shepherds and you brought all your flocks. And you have extra toilet paper. Like, what is this doing here? And when Paro calls you, because I know the system here, he's going to call, he's going to want to meet you. He's going to tell you, what do you do? Tell him your ranchers. So that you can live in Eretz Goshen. Because Egyptians are disgusted by anybody who is uh, a cattleman. Right? Or a shepherd. By the way, as an aside, why are Egyptians disgusted when someone's a shepherd or a cattleman? Pardon? Because they worship, right? They worship cows, they worship... By the way, this practice still exists in parts of the world. If you go to India and you want to have some fun, you know, just take a sheep, walk it through the town, and start beating it. Watch what happens. <laughs> want to start a mob, take a cow, ride on a cow and say, yeah! They'll, they'll shecht you, right? They worship these things. <laughs> okay? By the way, just to be said, don't make fun of them, because I worship this too. When... When it's in the chillant, it's really, it's unbelievable. But okay. Oh, never the vegans. Okay. Right? So he says, don't tell them that you have sheep. Tell them you're ranchers. Because then they'll let you live in Goshen. Now, Yosef therefore says three things. He says, they came to me. He says, tell them you're ranchers. 
And also, as an aside, the commentaries point out, don't talk about Goshen. Let it just happen that Paro says you have to be in Goshen. What did the brothers do? So that was the end of Perak Memvav. Now look in Perak Memzai and Pasuk uh, Gimel, right? Or Vayavo Yosef, Vayagid the Paro. So Yosef comes and he tells Paro, and he says, Aviva, Chai, Vetsonam, my father, my brothers, their sheep, their cattle, Kol Ashelahem, everything they have, Bao Meretz Kanan. Vihinam Beretz Goshen. And uh, they're in Goshen. They just, you know, kind of ended up there. I don't know, they just stopped there. So he takes five of his brothers. Why does he take five of his brothers? <clears throat> Why does he take ten of his brothers? Doesn't want to overwhelm Paro. Doesn't want Paro to see how tough they are. Maybe they'll be co-opted to other things. Not clear. Commentaries differ. So Paro says, so what do you do? Right? This is for some reason what people do. You meet someone and say, so what do you do? <clears throat> I was once at a, um, I was in New York City. And they asked me to do a Shabbaton. They called it a single Shabbaton. I don't like the term singles, but I'm not going to go there right now. And there were like 80 people showed up for this Friday. No, because there's no such thing as a single. But okay. Right? <laughs> so, 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 so there were like 80 people showed up for this Friday night dinner. And... Um, I get there. First thing I see is they put me on a dais. The rabbi has to be at the dais. Yuck. So I found a table to sit at. I'm not built for daises. And uh, I thought I'd, you know, do a kunst, you know, something interesting. I found out that, you know, people didn't know each other. They had all just signed up for the Shabbat to meet people, and nobody knew each other. So I stood up, I said, you know, before we sing Shalom Leichem, Shalom Leichem is, that's how you're supposed to start Friday night, Shalom Leichem. Do you know the people you're sitting with, get to know people's names, whatever? Introduce yourself. I said, we're just going to play a little game. Five minutes, okay? You're all just going to talk. The goal is that everybody at your table, you know, they have these like round tables. Because that way, if everybody sits at a round table, then half the people have their back to each other. I don't get it, but okay, right? Sit at your table, you're 10 people, everybody has to know everybody's name. And then most things on Lechem make Kiddush. But here's the deal you can't ask people what they do, right? You can't say, so what do you do? Talk to each other. I thought that was a good kunst, because that's what people say. So what do you do? No, no, talk to each other. I sit down, I'm so proud of myself. <laughs> Total silence. <laughs> Nobody knows what to say. Because we're so stuck on what, you, what do you do. But what you do isn't who you are. So isn't it interesting you find that here? It's the first thing Pyro says. So what do you do? Now we know what the answer is. Because Yosef already told them what the answer is. Right? Just say, we're Roe Mikneh. No, 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 no. Because they're the brothers and they like to do this, right? They basically say everything that Yosef told them not to say. So what do you do? Dafka, what Yosef said, don't say. Now, Paro is, Yosef wants to be Lehoshibotam that they dwell there, they say, no, we're just here temporarily. Lagul. Ki ein mir'el Yosef says, don't talk about that. No, no, no. We're not here because we value you. We're not here to contribute. We're just here because we don't have enough food up there. And we don't have anywhere to graze our flock. We'll be here for a little while. We'll graze our flock. As soon as it's good enough to go home, we're out of here. Right? Ki ein mir'el Ki Because there's a famine. 
And the third thing, we'd like to dwell in Goshen. Exactly what Yosef doesn't mention. Everything he tells him not to say. What is going on here? Right? I think there are two underlying themes to this dialogue. The first is our attitude to the nations that we lived in. You know, Steinsaltz has a fascinating comment. He has a sefer called... Um, it's a commentary on the parsha, and he points out that there are two separate ideas. One idea is chutzlaretz, or as Noam likes to call it, shmutzlaretz, right? Which is just geographic. If you leave the borders of Israel, you are technically out of Israel. You're chutzlaretz. You're out of Israel. Okay. If you're in Israel and you hold the psak of the lavush and lavavich rebbe and what we do at Araita, you keep one day. If you leave Israel, you keep two days on Yom Tov. So when do you start keeping two days? If you're in a plane, and the plane leaves Israeli air for air, airspace, you are in Chutzlaretz. Which is why, halakhically, across the board, with rare exception, right, unless there are mitigating circumstances, there's some important issue, you know, whatever, you don't fly out to Chutzlaretz on the second day of Yontif in America. Because then technically you're in Chutzlaretz, and you're publicly desecrating Yontif, you can't do that. So that's a geographic reality. Then there's a second issue, says Rav Steinbaltz, and that's the notion of galut, exile. Galut is not just geographic, galut is experiential. Galut, he says, we feel when we're being oppressed. When, 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 the, when the impact of the exile is felt. And that's fascinating. You can be in galut anywhere, right? If, if you're uh, one of the Neely spies, and you're in Israel, and they catch you, and your name is Sarah Aronson, and they take you to a prison cell, and they lay you on a table, and they take a, a, a club, and they begin to beat the bottom of your feet. You may technically be in Israel, but you're in exile. You're not in Chutzlaretz, but you're in Galut. Right? If you're in Teaneck, New Jersey, and you walk into a show, and everybody's taking off a day of work because we're celebrating Yom Atzimut. You're in Chutzlaretz, but you're experiencing on some level Geula. Fascinating idea. Based, by the way, on the Gemara, but we're not going to go there. Right? Yosef is saying, we need to become part of Egypt. We need to assimilate. We have much we can contribute. And there's a lot of source material to defend this position. There's Gemara in Megillah, on Davzayim, Right? I think it's on Daf Zayin. It's on Daf Tet. Tell him bed. And it's based on the Mishnah. The Mishnah says, on Daf Chet Amudbet, Ein bein sfarim letfilin u'mezuzot. What's the difference between writing a Sefer Torah, writing a tefillin or a mezuzah? Right? The, the, the parchment. Ela she'asfarim nechavim b'chol lashon. Right? The, the Sefer Torah, you can write down in any language, but you don't write a mezuzah in any language. Right? That's the opinion of Rabbi Meir of the Mishnah. Rabbi Shimon Gamliel of Meir, Right? Even Rav Shulia says, nope, you can't write a Sefer Torah in English, but you can write it in Greek. And that, and based on that, rabbis allowed themselves to translate it to the Septicon, to whatever it is. So the obvious question is, well, why is Greek okay? So, we pask in this way. Why? Amar Krak is the Pasuk my time at Rav Shimon why do we feel Greek is special? Yaft Elohim li yafet. Abiyishkon bo alay 
Because the Pasuk says the prediction of Noah in, in Paraktet in Breshit at the end of the flood, after the story there, is that Hashem will give beauty to the world of Yefet. What does Rashi say? Hu Lashon Yavan. Lashono Yefet This refers to the Greeks. The Greek wisdom, the Greek ideology is so beautiful, right? And it will ultimately dwell in the tents of shame, which means what? It means that the Jewish people can, can see beauty in the world of Greece. They can bring Greek beauty into the, the world of Torah, right? And that's a whole discussion. On the other hand, we saw the Gemara, right, that talks about the fact that Shimon Gamaliel was asked by his nephew, what about someone like me who's learned Kola Torah Kula? I learned enough Torah. Can I learn? I want to learn Chachma Yavanis. I want to learn the wisdom, the beauty of the Greeks. So Shimon Gamliel says, uh, Rabbi Shmuel says, well, you know what? The Pasuk says, Vagita Boyoma Valayla. Supposed to study Torah day and night. Leich Matzazman, find a time that isn't day and night, and then you could study. Like, in other words, no, you should be learning Torah. Interesting debate. I wonder if this is the debate between Yosef and his brothers. Yosef says, there's a lot to learn here. And we have a lot to contribute. So don't come to Paro and separate yourselves. Demonstrate to him that you have a lot to contribute. What's the difference between a shepherd and a rancher? Why is it important for Yosef that the brothers are bringing all their wealth with him, with them? Because then you have what to contribute. They're businessmen, they have companies, they can contribute. What are the brothers saying? The brothers are saying, we don't want anything to do with Egypt. Because we're playing the long game. We don't belong here. And as much as it says, we will be strangers in a land that isn't ours, and they have no idea what's about to happen to them, but this isn't where we're supposed to stay. So there's much to learn, and there's much to contribute. We'll contribute it here. We're going to, right? Am levadad yishkon. That's what uh, one of the prophecies of Bilam. We're a nation that's meant to dwell apart. And there is a second idea, by the way, but this is beyond the purview, which is should we kowtow to the nations of the world? Right? Yosef says, let Paro think you came to be with me. Why do you think there's a value if you came to be with me? Because you're not refugees. Let Paro understand that you came because, because you're shepherds and you have a lot to offer. Interesting. What's the logic of Yosef? Now I'm stretching here and I don't know if this is Yosef or just my interpretation. And there are others who write about this. If we contribute, then they'll value us. If we have what to give, then we'll be respected. And if you asked a Jew in 1925, 10, 15 years, before all hell broke loose, whether that was true, he would tell you that made a lot of sense. I'm living in Germany. I fought in World War I. I'm decorated. There were 100,000 Jewish soldiers who fought on the German-Prussian side in World War I. I have a business. I contribute to the economy. I have a lot to give. I have equal rights. I can vote. I can own land. There were almost no limitations. There was still plenty of anti-Semitism. There are no limitations. We're home. Moses Hess writes a book. Right, from Rome to Jerusalem. I remember the first time I picked that up, I thought this is going to be amazing. 
It's somewhere in the 1800s who understands we don't belong in Rome and where is Rome? Nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with that. It's that now we found the new Jerusalem, which is Rome. Unbelievable. And that's what Yosef seems to say. Now, I'm not judging Yosef. And, and, but, but the Torah wants to demonstrate to me that there is that philosophy. And the brothers say, We don't belong here. This is not where we're meant to be. We're going to stay in Goshen. We're shepherds. You don't like our sheep? Awesome. Then we're going to shepherd around so that we stay a little bit separate. That's how we belong. The beauty of Greece can flourish in the OLA shame, but up to a point. And what's the conclusion of this story? When you think about it, there is a storm coming. And the brothers and the Jews cannot possibly anticipate where this is going to go. If you want a recipe for how anti-Semitism begins, look at the beginning of the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. There's a new king in town. Now Rashi brings two opinions. One opinion is, it's Mamasha Melachadash. It's a new king. And the other is the same king, but he makes himself out to be new. He forgets about Yosef and the brothers. Either way, Rav Nevenzel has magnificent sicha on this topic. Either way, there is a fundamental character flaw here that is remarkable. Want to guess what it is? What is Paro and within the Egyptians experiencing? If, if, Yosef. They don't know anything about Yosef. They don't care about Yosef. They don't remember Yosef. What would you call that? What would you call that? Nobody? Pardon? Ingratitude. Denial of good. Think about this. This is a person who came and saved Egypt. He transformed Egypt. Shot in the puzzle into an empire. People came from all over the world the known world at the time, and they brought money and they brought wealth so that they could have food. And he created a system of storehouses. He, he, he created a land-owning scheme for Paro and the Kohanim, by the way. They became wealthy. They owned all of Egypt. And it became a world empire. I'll give you a similar example. Anybody here ever heard of Chaim Solomon? Do you know who Chaim Solomon was? Do you know who Chaim Solomon was? You might know because you study history. Do you know who Chaim Solomon was? This is unbelievable. Chaim Solomon was a Jew. He was born in Poland, actually, um, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, when he was about 25, 26, he came to America, the new colonies, okay, in the 17, early 1750s. Now, along his road, his journey to get from Poland and Germany and France to, if I'm not mistaken, to America, he accrued a tremendous knowledge of finance. And he built up a company and he established wealth. And he came in the 1750s, and I'll spare you the whole story, though it's a fascinating read. Um, when the American Revolution began, he basically financed the American Revolution. In fact, in 17, I think it was 81 or 82, the, the, the Americans finally had Cornwallis on the run. They cornered him. Um, in Virginia, along the coast, Chesapeake Bay, uh, but they didn't have the money to finish the campaign. They needed money for uniforms, for arms. They hadn't, the American soldiers had not been paid in quite a while. Many of them were, were, were you know, sort of past their point of service, and they were only staying on because they were being paid, much as we don't like to idealize it that way. And it was going to fall apart. The French had not arrived yet. 
And the legend is, now I don't know if this is true, but it's a great legend, that um, George Washington says to his aide-de-camp, get me Chaim Solomon. Chaim Solomon writes a letter, this we do know, because he has it, writes a letter to find out how much does Washington need, and the response is $20,000. $20,000 in 1781 is an enormous money. It's about millions and millions of dollars. Chaim Solomon raises the money in two weeks and funds the American Revolution. In fact, the estimate is that at the end of the war, Chaim Solomon had raised upwards of $1.7 million in 17... That's billions of dollars in today's numbers. He is credited with financing the American Revolution. Now, the amazing thing about Chaim Solomon was that his wealth at the end of the war was held in notes of promise, promissory notes which basically meant that he had debt that the Americans owed him. And the government, the new government, wrote these documents saying, we owe you. And the estimate is he had about $330,000, according to one estimate, in promissory notes. But they weren't worth the paper they were written on. America defaulted on them. America was bankrupt. It had no money after the war, whatever. So he died penniless. He's buried in a pauper's grave. He left behind a wife and I believe four children who were destitute. Uh, a number of times, Congress tried to pass a law that would compensate Chaim Solomon's family for all the money that he had spent, and the law never passed. It took almost 200 years till the 1950s for America to finally name an aircraft carrier after Chaim Solomon. Thank you very much. Okay? And there are all sorts of legends about whether the mug and David on the dollar bill is because of Chaim Solomon, whatever. Nothing fundamental ingratitude. That is a scary concept. The Shoah began because the German people <coughs> had no gratitude to what the Jews were contributing. And I'll tell you two interesting things about that. Rav Nevitzel makes a good point. The Pasuk says, right, What's the next thing we find that Paro doesn't know? Anybody know? Says Rav Nevenzel, if you start, you know, ingratitude is not just the flip side of gratitude. It's a terribly destructive character trait. It's healthy for a person to be grateful. Right? In fact, emunah, Rav Elchan Wasman talks about this, the basis of emunah is gratitude. To look around you at the world, to see everything that comes to your life and realize that there's a source to this and you owe that source and that's emunah, that's to believe that Hashem gives us everything. Ingratitude to those around you will ultimately lead you to ingratitude to Hashem, you'll lose your relationship. Fascinating idea. So one minute the Jews are on top of the world, the vice president of Egypt is their brother, and the next minute they're in the pit of slavery. It's exactly Yosef's journey. And here we sit, in the 21st century, and we have contributed so much to the West that the number of Nobel Prize winners, you know, you're sitting at your desk in a company in America. If the Jews hadn't done what they'd done, you wouldn't have a processor for your computer. You wouldn't have cell phone technology. You wouldn't be able to get to your meeting with ways. I mean, the list is endless. And yet, anti-Semitism is alive and well in America. That should give us pause. What the brothers are saying here is be there, work there, 
learn there, grow there. Don't think you're meant to stay there. That place is not home. We have one home, and it's not Hoboken, New Jersey. Little food for thought on Safer's Mount.